I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. In our exposition of Matthew, we have arrived at this great story of the Sadducees questioning Jesus in verses 22 through 33. And as you're turning there, I would like to relate to you what took place at the Brandon household this past Thanksgiving. Uh, Many of you know we hosted some international students over the Thanksgiving holiday as we have done for about four years now. And um, we pick them up on Wednesday afternoon. They spend all weekend with us. And we had two men from China this past weekend. And it was a, a great time. And I would really encourage you all to think about doing that next year as an outreach, as a love to strangers, as a love to the world beyond America, um, to, to do that. If it all, I know for some of you it's practically impossible, but for many of you it, it could be a possibility of taking a student into your home and sharing Christmas with them. A lot, most of these students come from uh, distant lands, and they spend most of their time in America in a dorm. One year in America, oftentimes these are graduate students that go back to their, their mainlands. And it's a perfect opportunity for you to provide them an example of a Christian home, an example of an American family. And we've always enjoyed learning from these other, you know, students. You know, one of our first activities, we, we come home, we take open an atlas. So where are you from? You know, and they show us where they're from. And, and these particular students were from the Liang, Liaoning province in China in the northeast section. And uh, just good to talk to them about that. And we, we picked them up on Wednesday about, you know, we had a potluck dinner Wednesday. We're asking them all about where they're from, what are they studying, how long they've been here and things like that. And eventually it turned around to us. And um, they said, so what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm, I'm a pastor of a church. And one guy's eyes from China got real big. And he said, oh, so you can teach us the Bible. Talking about an open door for the gospel. I mean, this was this is a wonderful time. In years past, always the gospels come up as they've seen it. But never before has it been such an open door. And so even Thursday morning, we just opened the Bible. And I asked them, I said, you know, do you know much about the Bible? Do you know much about Christianity or some? And, and the one guy says, and I shared this with some of you, he lives in a, a town of 1.2 million people, knows no other Christian, knows of one church in the whole town, and has just kind of been reading the Bible. And uh, as I talked with him, you could tell he read the Bible quite a bit. He knew quite a few things. The other guy really didn't know much at all. He just said, oh, I just started reading the Bible and come to the United States. And uh, so really, we had to start with the creation of God and bring it to God's choosing of Abraham to build a a nation for them. And the first day we we studied, we looked at Acts chapter 7, Stephen's sermon. So we looked at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and and Moses and how just a continual testimony of God was God was gracious and kind to Israel, but they rejected, they spurned him, they hated him. And then even when the prophets came, they spurned and they hated God. They they cherished their own idols and they cherished their own wickedness and they hated God. And even when Jesus, their Messiah, came, what'd they do? They, they crucified him upon the cross. And one of these men, as I went across this story, said, how sad, how sad that they were so angry and hostile to God that they would crucify Jesus, a righteous man. And, and you know, as we went on weekend, we talked a lot about the Bible and talking about the role of Jesus. And they asked many questions, and I sought to answer them as best I could. One question I found very difficult to answer 
One, some we had in English. You know, there was a language barrier a little bit, but if you work hard at it, you could, you could do it. But his question was this. He said, do the Jews today, because they had seen the Jews reject Jesus, do the Jews today believe the Bible? Do they believe the Scriptures? Do they believe the Old Testament? And, and trying to communicate this to these men, I, I had a hard time, because on the one hand, Jews today do. I mean, they, they read the Bible. If you ask them, do you believe the Bible? They say, oh, yes. You know, they read the Bible. They study the Bible. In fact, they're bar mitzvah training for their, their, their sons and their bat mitzvah for their daughters. I mean, they are in memorizing the Bible, learning to, heed the he, learn to read the Hebrew. In fact, much of their Bible training would put us to shame. So on the one hand, yes, they believe the Bible. But on the other hand, they don't believe the Bible. Because Jesus said... Moses, if you believe Moses, if you believe the Old Testament, you'd believe me because he spoke of me. So there very much is a sense of the Jews that they, they say they believe, they read, they study, they do believe, but they have missed Jesus, who is really the crucial. And bottom line is they don't understand what they read. They don't understand what they read. And we're going to see in this text this morning, in Matthew chapter 23, of some people who didn't understand the Scriptures either. I'm talking about the Sadducees. If you look there in verse 23, it says, On that day some Sadducees came to Jesus. Now, we don't know a lot about the Sadducees. The Sadducees were one of the religious sects in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. There were Pharisees, of which the Scripture speaks a lot about the Pharisees, right? I mean, they're always coming to Jesus. They're always testing Jesus. They're always, you know... um, against Jesus. We know a lot about the Pharisees, all right? The Sadducees is a second sect. We know a little bit about them. They come in Matthew chapter 3, coming to to, uh, John the Baptist to be baptized by them, by him. They come in Matthew chapter 16, seeking signs and wonders from Jesus. And they come right here in Matthew chapter 22. We hear about a little bit more of them from Acts chapter 23, but for the most part, the Bible doesn't speak a lot about them. And then a third sect in uh, Judaism at the time were the Essenes. Now, the Bible is totally silent about them. But those that were in the Dead Sea Scrolls, wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, those are the Essenes. Those are the big three, you know, we could call them denominations, if you will, of the Jewish religion at the time. And so we come here to the Sadducees. We don't know much about them, but Matthew gives us what we do need to know. In verse 23, he says this. He says, these Sadducees say there is no resurrection. By the way, it's easy to remember why the Sadducees believe in no resurrection, right? Because they believe in no resurrection and they believe in no hope. And see, that's why they're sad, you see. Right? You get that? So these are Sadducees. They say there is no resurrection. They believe that this life was all there is. After you die, you're finished. There's no coming back from the dead. When the body perishes, the soul does as well. And they said there's no judgment. They said after this life, there are no rewards and no penalties. They were naturalists who didn't believe in the supernatural. And we pick up from Acts chapter 23, verse 8. We find out the Sadducees didn't believe in angels and didn't believe in spirits either. They were eminently earthly people. Grounded to terra firma, who believe that all there is, is the here and now. And they certainly didn't believe in the resurrection. They thought it was speculation at best and folly at worst. And they come to Jesus with this question, trying to to show forth how foolish the resurrection is. 
They say this. They question him in verse 23, saying, Teacher. Now, they didn't have to say teacher to Jesus, but I think they were flattering him like the Pharisees did back in our previous passage several weeks ago. Flattering him, saying, Teach us. Moses said. Now, they, they refer this passage, but Moses quoted. They quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, as to what should take place when a man dies, leaving no offspring for his, his wife and children, for his wife and no children. And it's typical from what else we know of the Sadducees. They placed a high emphasis upon Moses. I mean, the Pharisees, we know everything about them as they look at all the scriptures and they built a big hedge around the scriptures, the oral law. The Sadducees hated the oral, the oral law and they weren't so sure about the prophets and the Psalms, but they, they, they trusted those to the extent that they agreed with Moses. Moses was like everything to them. And so it's appropriate for them to go back to Deuteronomy 25 to quote this passage for them. And they said this, Moses said, verse 24, If a man dies, having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. In this verse, it's clear. The brother of the man whose wife died was instructed to take the widow as his wife and raise up an offspring for him. Now, you need to see the subtleties of their question here is because they said that Moses said this such of an arrangement would raise up an offspring after him. This word raise up, if you look at the Greek text, it's exactly the same word, same, same root as is the word resurrection. And so in the minds of these Pharisees, they said, well, the Bible might speak about the resurrection, but what it's talking about when you talk about resurrection is not the resurrection from the dead, a body coming to life, we're talking about the fact that as your seed goes on and as your, your children grow up, the, you are living in them. That was their view of resurrection. Insofar as your children proceeded to live, you were resurrected. They didn't believe in the resurrection that Jesus spoke of people actually raising from the dead. They said that leads to logical absurdity. And I just say here, as a side note, rather than believing the Scriptures, they trusted their own logic, like many do today. We ought to trust what the Scriptures say. But they had concocted in their mind this logic about how the bodily resurrection from the dead is incongruous with a belief in Moses in the Old Testament. So they tell this story. They say, verse 25, Now, there were seven brothers with us, the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. Now, we don't know if this really happened. But the Sadducees posed the question as if it did happen. Look there in verse 25. There were seven brothers with us, almost leading credence to the fact that this actually happened. I'm skeptical because this seems far-fetched. I mean, I can understand a man having seven brothers, right? I can understand that. The 12 tribes of Israel, you know, that's 12 brothers, 11 brothers. I can understand a family of that size. I can understand a, a man marrying a widow and before they had children, the man dying. I can understand that. I can understand his brother taking the widow 
And I can even understand that brother dying and having the third brother take place. But I really have to question the, the intelligence of the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. I mean, at some point, they'd, they'd at least come to the realization that this woman is bad news. If I was one of those, I think I would go to the home and open up the spice cabinet and see if arsenic was one of her favorite spices. Far-fetched. But you know what? The dilemma still stands. What about those who have two husbands? There are some of you in this room, I know, been married several times. Some of us have relatives, been married several times. I know like my sisters. I have, two of my sisters are married to men who have been married before. One of, one of them... Uh, was married to a, a gal, and before they had children, she died in a massive, tragic car accident. And so my sister is married to this man who's been married to someone else before. My other sister is married to a man whose wife deserted him, left him, didn't want anything to do with his Christianity. And so I, I think in my mind, what about my sisters in heaven? What would be the situation with that? The question still stands, and the question is a valid one, even if the seven brothers and seven, and seven husbands is not appropriate. Right? To whom will they be married? And I'm sure the Sadducees at this point thought they had Jesus right where they wanted him. I'm sure they had him right there. There's no way he's going to be able to answer this question. He's going to show and demonstrate how this talk about the resurrection is all foolishness and folly. Well, Jesus, as always, answers the question plainly and honestly and gets to the heart of the matter with an economy of words that's incredible. He says, verse 29, You are mistaken. You're mistaken. You don't understand. Not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. From this verse, I have generated my sermon title this morning. Do you understand? My first two points are going to come right here from verse 29. Because these Sadducees had two crucial misunderstandings. They didn't understand the scripture and they didn't understand the power of God. So I want to ask you this morning, four questions. The first one is this. Do you understand the teaching of Scripture? Do you understand the teaching of Scripture? The Scripture teaches the resurrection. There's no doubt about this. And Jesus really gives proof in verse 31 and 32. He says, regarding the resurrection of the dead... Now, with this phrase, again, Jesus being subtle, but he's hitting the issue exactly. I am talking about the resurrection bodily of those who have died. He's not talking about resurrection like the Sadducees would tend to believe, raising up an offspring. He's talking about resurrection of the dead. And he says, regarding that, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And with this response, Jesus demonstrates his amazing ability to handle Scripture and to discern the questions, the intent, and everything going on. Jesus could have quoted from other Old Testament passages which teach the resurrection. 
Psalm 16, verse 10. He could have used that passage. He could have quoted from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, which teaches the resurrection. He could have quoted from Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, which teaches the resurrection. He could have quoted from Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, which teaches the resurrection. He could have quoted from Job 19, verses 25 through 27, which teaches the resurrection. He could have used the Old Testament narrative of Elisha raising up the widow's son from the dead. 2 Kings chapter 4, chapter 2, chapter 4, I think it is. He could have, catch this, he could have said, oh, you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, do you? Well, let's just journey with me to Bethany. Because in Bethany, I know these two sisters who had a brother that was dead for four days. His name was Lazarus. And just last week, I raised him from the dead. And he is walking about. And that he is alive and well is of no doubt. In fact, even the the Pharisees, if you look in John 11, they were so worried. He's performing signs. Everybody's going to believe in him. And so they wanted to kill Jesus. And and the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead really pierced their heart because they knew they were big time in trouble. And Jesus could have used experiential proof, but he didn't. He went back to the scripture and went back to the words of Moses himself because he knew these Sadducees, right? They believe Moses way up here. They believe Moses maybe even more than they believe their experience about Lazarus raising from the dead. So he uses them on their ground and says, okay, let's just look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. The argument goes like this. Abraham lived. You know, when was Abraham? Do you remember what dates? About 2000 B.C. And Abraham lived for a long time. I forget how many years, 120 years, something like that. Isaac and Jacob, they're all about 2000, 1900, 1800 B.C. Now Moses comes along. When did he live? 1400. Hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob And yet hundreds of years later, God appeared to Moses at the burning bush and says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It was precisely because God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that Jesus argues, basically, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still living. They are still living. And just a footnote, I want you to see here, the extent to which the inspiration of Scripture goes, Jesus argues based upon the tense of a verb for his theological point. His whole argument crumbles if the verb is different. But he said the verb was an is rather than a a was. And in fact, some sermon I want to preach someday is, we don't have time today, but Jesus' view of Scripture. Jesus' view of Scripture, he always saw it's authoritative. He always saw that when it spoke, it was equivalent to God speaking. He said not any jot or tittle, that's just little dots of eyes, will pass away from this law until all is accomplished. And even here, he argues on the tense of a verb. Ought it make you trust the Bible and what it says? It ought to. But anyway, his point right here was that God spoke in the present tense. means these men must be alive. Life doesn't end in the grave. It continues long past the day that you die here on earth. And I simply ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe that when you die, you will be every bit as alive as you are right now? D.L. Moody put it well when he said, 
Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Norfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher. That is all out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. I was born in the flesh in 1837. I was born in the spirit in 1856. And that which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the spirit will live forever. He puts it well. And that's what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that every single one of us will die someday. But in that day, we will not die. In that day, we shall live. It's merely that the sphere of where we're living will be transferred from this earth to another place. I've heard Darcy Robine say before, you know, it's like this, this Roller coaster ride, like no roller coaster ride you've ever been on, right? And you're going down and you're swooping up and you're going in. It's a fascinating ride vroom, into another dimension. You're going to find yourself in a different place and you're going to be more alive then than you are right now. One moment, you're gasping for your last breath and the next moment, you're in the presence of Almighty God to give an account for your life. That's what the Scriptures teach. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed of man to die once and after that comes the judgment. And when you stand before God, you've got one hope in this life. You've got only one, that you stand before God. You look at to the right, you look to Jesus, your advocate. And your only hope is that Jesus will stand there and say, Oh, oh, my father, this one, no, this one's special. Don't judge him for his sins and don't cast him into hell. Because I have died for his sins. The cross at Calvary. You crucified me, Father. Do you remember Do you remember that time? When you were pleased to crush the Son. And you crucified me. And you punished me in his stead. And he is one of ours. And he gets to enter into the joy of his rest. You can't punish him. To punish him would be to punish this sin twice. But you've already punished me. That's your only hope. Is it after you die, you have an advocate with the Father? Your only hope is that Jesus Christ won't be ashamed of you at the judgment. As Jesus said, everyone who shall confess me before men, I'll confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. That's the teaching of Scripture. Do you understand it? Now, I've not even barely touched upon the New Testament, but the teaching of the resurrection is a major doctrine in the New Testament. When the apostles went out to preach, they often made mention of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, often that was their main point. Jesus has risen from the dead in our evangelism. I think that should often be our main point. We believe in a crucified, risen Savior. People don't like to hear about people raising from the dead, but that was the point of their message. And Paul... Boy, you think about his letters. They're saturated with references to Christ and His his resurrection and our resurrection as well. And and Paul lived his life often with with the the crown of righteousness that the, the Lord has stored up for him that he will receive when he dies. He longed for that time. He wanted to get rid of this sinful, wretched body and be set free to serve God. 
1 Corinthians 15 contains a whole chapter talking about the crucial, central place of the resurrection in the life of the New Testament believer. So don't think this is a subordinate doctrine. This is a huge doctrine for Christians. In fact, I even think about the Apostles' Creed. It ends by these six affirmations. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic, that is the universal Christian church. I believe in the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. One of the crucial affirmations the early church pledged was that they believed in the resurrection of the body from the dead. And I simply say this doctrine of the resurrection is so glorious, you ought to eagerly long for the day when Jesus transforms you. Do you understand the teaching of Scripture? If you do, you'll long for the day. The Sadducees didn't understand the Scripture. They didn't understand the power of God either. My second question today, do you understand the power of God You know, there are many people who doubt the resurrection simply because they don't believe in the power of God. I mean, they think once you fall into the grave, there's no hope again of ever rising again. And in fact, the more you understand medically, physically, what happens to a body when it dies, how quickly it starts to decompose, what takes place, how all the organs shut down, there's no life in it, that hump of dust isn't going to rise again. It's hard to believe in the resurrection. But the scriptures teach it. First Thessalonians 4.13, Paul teaches about those who have died. We're told as Christians we ought not to believe, not, not to grieve for our loved ones like those who have no hope. Now, certainly there's place at Christian funerals for, for grief over the loss of a loved one. Right? Grief that you will see them no longer. Grief of the hole that's left in your life. But all of your grief of one who's trusted in Christ has to be self-centered. I'm crying because I'm sad because of what I have lost as they have gone away. But there ought to be no grief whatsoever for anybody who has left this life. Because for those who have trusted in Christ, the place they're going is a better place. They will enter into the joy with Jesus when they die. Christ, Paul called dying gain. And Paul longed to be with Christ far more than he longed to be here on earth but for love to others was content to stay and to be here on earth. And when the Lord comes back in 1 Thessalonians, He's going to bring those with Him who've fallen asleep in Jesus. And they'll be alive in greater measure than we will be. Listen, when a Christian dies, as Paul says, Philippians 1.23, it's very much better for him. You know, often when people don't believe in the resurrection, it has to do with the lack of their understanding of the power of God, which is the case of these Pharisees. But I want you to know that that God is powerful beyond all measure. Jeremiah once prayed, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Daniel chapter 4 that we read today. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Nobody can ward off his hand or say to him, God, what have you done? You just can't do that to God. God is so powerful and omnipotent. I remember hearing the story one time of the scientists who got together. And they figured they'd advance so far. Maybe some of you heard this. I've heard it many times They've got together and said, we know so much, we don't need God any longer. 
they decide to pick one scientist to go and God to tell God, hey, God, we don't need you any longer. We're done with you. And so the scientist walked up to God and said, God, we don't need you any longer. Right? We're to the point we can clone people. We can do miraculous things. And we don't need you. So just go and get lost, God. And God was patient with this scientist, was kind to this man. After he was done talking, he said, very well, then how about this? Let's have a, a man-making contest. The scientist said, okay, great. We know how to clone. This will be fine. And God then added, no, 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 we're going to do it like we did back in the times of, of Adam. So the scientist said, sure, no problem. And he reached down to grab some dirt. And God said, oh, wait on a minute. You go get your own dirt. All of a sudden, it starts to put things in perspective of how God creates something from nothing. And when you start thinking about how God created ex nihilo, He created everything that is from nothing, you begin to understand that He must have been outside of us. He must be this divine being. He must be so unlike us, so much greater than we are. And when you think and contemplate the vastness of the universe, it is unbelievable. It testifies to the power of God in the grand scheme of things. We are, we are puny. Like last night I was sharing my sermon with my family and um, we're eating dinner and my son, you know, takes this, uh, takes this little speck of um, crumbs from the bread we were eating and he said, well, the, the earth, Dad, to the whole solar system is like this crumb to our whole house. And I said, mm, it's a lot, 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 lot worse than that. And I've been thinking about this. I mean, you think about our, our lifespan is only, as Moses says, 70 or if God gives strength, 80 years. And we live on this tiny planet in this huge solar system, which is one of... I researched this a little bit. One of two, 200 billion solar systems in our galaxy. As big as this is, it's one of 200 billion. And our galaxy, as big as that is, is one of trillions of galaxies in the visible universe that we can see. And God created six days, speaking it into existence. The power to resurrect a body from the grave is nothing compared to the power of God in creation. And maybe we need to be reminded afresh of Paul's question that he put forth to these Sadducees. Maybe these same Sadducees that asked Jesus. He said in Acts 26, verse 8, Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? I mean, if God is God, He is sovereign. And if He is sovereign, He can do all things. Can He not raise a body from the dead? The fact of the resurrection ought not to be a difficulty with you. Now, to be sure, there's much mystery surrounding the resurrection. I mean, I just wrote down a few questions that I have about the resurrection. Like, when's the resurrection going to take place? When's it going to be? How many resurrections are there? Revelation 20, verse 15, verse 5, talks about the first resurrection. What about the second resurrection? Are there others? Who will be resurrected? All? Everybody? To where? Some? What exactly happens af- after the resurrection? 
What will our bodies be like in the resurrection? Does God bring back all our molecules together? Or are we entirely recreated? What about what we remember? What about our, our marriage or our relationships in heaven? And, and questions abound in the resurrection. And today, I'm, I'm not even going to presuppose or try to answer all these little questions in a little bit. I want to answer one of these questions in detail that Jesus really gives us an insight into it. I want to answer the question about marriage and relationships in heaven because Jesus talked about it in verse 30 that I skipped. It's my third point. Do you understand the character of heaven? This verse 30. Jesus said, In the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Do you understand the character of heaven? Right? You need to note here and understand that, first of all, this would have been a, a slam to the Sadducees who originally asked the question. I mean, as I told you before, they didn't believe in angels. But Jesus here asserts the reality of angels. They would have hated many of the songs we sang today. Angels from the realms of glory. They would have hated that song because they didn't, don't believe in angels. They would have hated the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. They would have hated the song, Angels We Have Heard on High. Because they didn't believe in the angels. But Jesus said here that someday we'll be like angels. Now notice, contrary to that great movie, It's a Wonderful Life, okay? We won't be angels, okay? You don't need to earn your wings. Great movie, Bad Theology. Right? You don't need to earn your wings. We will be like angels. Now, in some ways, do you know that all of us are already like angels a bit? I mean, there's some passages in Scripture where angels come to earth and look a lot like people. In fact, in Genesis chapter 19, these angels came to Lot, and he didn't realize they were angels. In Judges chapter 13, an angel came to visit Manoah, And it says in verse 15 and 16 that Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Didn't even know he was the angel. And the writer of the Hebrews says we ought to show hospitality to strangers. For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. It's a good excuse, if any, to entertain some men from China. Maybe they're angels. Entertain strangers. That means taking strangers into your house. They may be angels. We don't know. We can't tell. Angels can come and live among us without actually knowing that they're angels. So we're like them. And furthermore, angels, when you look and study in the Bible, you find they have, they have minds and can reason and think and talk. They're aware of the things that take place on earth. They have names and identities. They willingly worship and they willingly serve God. There are many similarities between us already and angels, but there are some ways in which we're not like angels. First of all, angels never die. Luke 20, verse 36. They never die. And the holy angels have never sinned. And they don't sin now, and they never ever will sin. That's different than us. As a result, angels, the holy angels, have never needed to be redeemed. That's why in 1 Peter chapter 1, we're told the angels long to look into salvation because they long to understand God's grace because they haven't needed it, because they haven't sinned, haven't needed it like we need it. And so to be like angels, we need to change. Our bodies need to change to be bodies that won't die. 
And Paul says that, 1 Corinthians 15, 53. He says this perishable will put on the imperishable. That which can die will put on that which cannot die. And the mortal will put on immortality. We will never die. Also, to be like the holy angels, we need to be sinless. And for those who believe in Christ, our bodies will be raised a spiritual body that will never sin again. And when Jesus appears, John tells us that when we see Him, we'll be like Him because we'll see Him just as He is. When Jesus appears, we'll be like Jesus and we'll be like the angels in the fact that we'll be sinless. And our relationships will change. That's the crux here of verse 30. Jesus says here there's no marriage in heaven. So if you're married to a woman, you won't be a husband in heaven. If you're a wife married to a man, you won't be a wife in heaven. Now, the reasons for this, I think, are several. I mean, first of all, in heaven, there's no more procreation. Children won't be born in heaven. It'll be like angels. Angels, you know, don't cohabitate and produce baby angels. Just God created all the angels somewhere in the first six days. We don't know when. All the angels ever created were all created. Best we could piece together is systematic theology. Some of them fell, joined Satan in his ranks. Some of them remained holy and stayed with God to serve Him forever. And one of the purposes of marriage is to create offspring, right? Be fruitful and multiply, Genesis chapter 1. And if there's no need for that in heaven, there's no need for marriage in heaven. So you won't be married. Now, I was going over my sermon last night as so I was saying at the dinner table. <clears throat> my family, I was really struck by sadness at this. I mean, I thought about just the mere fact of not being married to Yvonne and... It was sad. Now, sad for me. For some people, they might be saying, Hallelujah! I am free! <laughs> but I'm, I'm saddened by thinking about not cohabitating with Yvonne forever. I think about the pleasure and the joy we've enjoyed in her marriage. I, I think of her, her disservice of me and my love for her and to think that we cannot enjoy each other forever is really hard to think. But we're promised in Psalm 16, verse 11, that in the presence of God there's fullness of joy and in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And I simply say that any satisfaction and joy and delight that any of you have in marriage, God will fully replace all of that and more so. You will find more joy and satisfaction in God than you will ever find in your spouse. And furthermore, I do believe that though marriage may be dissolved, we will recognize each other in heaven. There are many clues to this in the Bible. I think about the Mount of Transfiguration when uh, Elijah and Moses appeared. Remember, in Matthew chapter 17, they were recognizable. People raised from the dead, still recognizable. I think that means they're still recognizable in heaven. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 56, that Abraham saw his day and was glad. So Abraham, looking down, seeing the affairs of man, saw the day of Jesus and was glad. 
means Abraham still was in heaven and recognizable and distinct. We were, we're not this ethereal sphere of numberless, nameless glob of spiritual creatures. We'll be identifiable. On another occasion, Jesus described the fate of two men, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man enjoyed his wealth in this age, and Lazarus was poor after they died. The poor man was in Abraham's bosom, and the rich man was tormented in hell. And there was some conversation and talk back among them. They knew and had cognition about who they were in the previous life. And so I think that we will recognize one another. And so for those of us who are married, I believe that we will certainly recognize our spouses. And we may be great friends with our spouses in heaven, but we will not be married. We'll not cohabitate with them like we do now. We'll be like the single folks among us. And in many ways, I think Paul's admonition of 1 Corinthians 7 applies to us, is that we'll be freed up then to figure out how we can please our Lord rather than being encumbered by how we need to please our wife or our husband. And I think, by the way, this has great implication for your marriage. I mean, this has huge implication for your marriage. Realize your relationship with your your husband or wife here on earth will not be forever. It's, catch this, it's a time of preparation for something better. Husband, you ought to live in such a way as to prepare your wife for the day that she will serve Jesus with no hindrance. And wife... You ought to live your life in such a way to prepare your husband for the day in which he is free to serve his Lord with no hindrance. I think this sounds a lot like Paul. Remember Ephesians 5 when he told husbands, Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. And the parallel there is too close. It says this. It says, Just as Jesus died to purify his church, someday to present to himself, so husbands, you ought to work very hard to purify your wives to cleanse them by the washing of the the Word and and sanctify them and make them holy that you might present them to Jesus as His bride someday. And since the whole church is being presented to Jesus, I think the flip is true. I think, wives, you ought to live in such a way that you encourage your husband in holiness and purity and righteousness and godliness that someday when Jesus presents the church to himself, you have done everything you can do to promote holiness and righteousness and purity and love for Christ in your husband. So husbands, so wives, I encourage you to conduct your marriage with an eye to the future. Think of the day when you will willingly lose your spouse to the unabated service of Jesus and foster in one another the things that will make transition, that transition a joy for you and your spouse because that's where you're going to find yourself forever. 
Think about children, right? We train our children to be adults someday. Children aren't to be children forever. We're, gonna, we're training them to be responsible. Because children is a preparation for adulthood. And likewise, we as well. We should be training ourselves to live eternally like the angels. This life isn't the end. This life is a preparation to come. And so I think about even children. How many times have you heard people say, oh, your children, I hear it all the time. Oh, your children are so young. Enjoy your children while they're young. Have you heard that before? Why? Because eventually they're going to grow up and they're going to be out from you. You're not going to have it anymore. And I just say, married folk, enjoy your marriage to the fullest while you have it. There's going to be a day when you don't have it. But it's going to be far better. So live it up now. And prepare your spouse for the future. And I think about those of us who are single. I think there's great implication here for us as well, for you as well. I mean, not being married in this age no way hinders your service to the Lord in heaven. You're not going to get to heaven and say, Oh, I, I didn't have a spouse. I, didn't, I wasn't ever married. How can I serve God? No. We're going to catch up to you. And we will be like single people, those of us who are married. Free to serve our Lord in ways we can't right now. In fact, in many ways, those who are single today are living right now in many ways the perfect existence someday you'll have in your life. Without the encumbrance of a spice. I think about Jesus, the most perfect man that ever walked the earth. He was single. You don't need to be married to find ultimate fulfillment. Our ultimate fulfillment is found with the Lord. In that day, there'll be no marriage. Do you understand the character of heaven? Will you live today with an eye to the future of thinking about that day? My last point. Do you understand the teaching of Scripture? Do you understand the power of God? Do you understand the character of heaven? And here it is. Do you understand the wisdom of Jesus? I get this point from verse 33. It said, And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at His teaching. I'm trying to step back a little bit from the context here. I mean, our text today is the second in a series of three questions that Jesus answered. A couple weeks ago, we looked at that passage where the Pharisees came with the Herodians trying to trap Jesus, talking about taxes and whether they should pay them or not. And he said, you know, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Masterful response. And this week we come right here with the Sadducees. What about the resurrection? And he gives a masterful response. And next week we'll see what's the greatest commandment in the law. It's a trick question, by the way. I'll show you why next week. And he gives a masterful response. The wisdom of Jesus is unsurpassed. These people have been thinking and cogitating upon the most difficult theological questions they could give Jesus, and he passed it with flying colors. And by the way, notice that it wasn't a take-home exam. It was an oral exam. It wasn't even a written exam where Jesus could have, okay, well, let me think, I got, let's say I got three hours to finish this exam, and now let me think, and let me page through my Bible. No, instantly. He gave the correct answer right away. Also, I want you to notice the brevity of his answers. I mean, to speak long is easier than speaking short. <laughs> Speaks about my sermons, I guess. But I'm just telling you that it's hard to synthesize things into a small chunk. Right, Elroy? It's hard to synthesize it into just a small Capsule. And that's what Jesus does three times. Boom, 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 every time. And I think that it shows the surpassing wisdom of Jesus. He takes this most difficult oral examination and passes it with flying colors. 
to such an extent that verse 46, no one dared to ask him another question because they knew that if they would ask him a question, he'd answer. Not only, it's interesting, not only would he answer the question, he'd pierce their heart and convict them of their own sin. In a few words, it's amazing what he's done. And I think what took place here with Jesus responding to these attacking questions is similar to what took place as Jesus walked the earth. I mean, he knew how to respond to everybody coming to him. He always had the right word on his tongue. He always knew right what to say. He always knew how to say it. To the downcast, he gave encouragement. To the sinning people, he gave hope. To the righteous, he gave rebukes. To the antagonist, he always responded with grace, but truth. To the inquirer, he gave them what was needed. How rightly did Jesus fulfill the proverb, like none of us have ever done. Proverbs 15, 23. How delightful is the timely word. It's the same today. Jesus knows how to respond today. Jesus knows how to help. Jesus knows how to answer all the difficult questions in life. And, and I know that in my mind, there are lots of questions in this life that I, I know that I don't have an answer to. I mean, theological questions, practical questions, circumstantial questions. I mean, things that I just don't know and I don't have the answer to. But I know that Jesus does. I guess many of you are no different than I am. I mean, maybe you ask about your life. Why your wife and mother were taken away from you? Why, God? You know what? He's got the answer. Or how about that? Why, why did I grow up in a non-Christian home and be exposed to all this sin for years, which has implication on my life? God, why did you do that? God has answered to that. Or how about an illness you're struggling with? God, why? Why do I have this illness? Jesus has the answer to that. Maybe your questions are more theological. How does the absolute sovereignty, rule, and reign of God, like we read in Daniel chapter 4, mix with the responsibility of man? I don't know, but God does. Maybe you have questions theologically about the future, right? What exactly is going to happen in the future? What are different views? How exactly is it going to happen? Maybe you have questions about the atonement. How is it that God can punish Jesus rather than me? And questions will abound. And I just say with all these questions, you can come with two attitudes. You can come and see Sadducees did and attack Jesus and say, Jesus, I need an answer right now. And you demand an answer from Jesus. Jesus, show me in the Bible where that is. You open it or, or give me a revelation or, or give me something. Give me a sign. That is how the Sadducees came in Matthew 16. And remember what Jesus said? A wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Or you can come humbly, realizing that Jesus knows the answer. Because the wisdom of Jesus is unsurpassed. He knows all mysteries. Colossians Colossians 2 verse 3 says that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Nothing escapes the knowledge of Jesus. And you can ask Jesus any question you want, and he has the answer. And he may give you the answer you want, or he may not. He may withhold it. He may choose to remain silent as he did before Pilate. In some instances, the mysteries of life, God has chosen to remain silent 
In other instances, God has chosen to reveal them to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a great passage. It gives a great perspective. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. In other words, God has them, belong to Him. He's not letting them out. But the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. I simply say, there's enough here for you to know and to follow and obey. Even if you don't get all your theoretical questions answered or your why questions answered, know that Jesus has the answer and He can be trusted with that answer. I mean, I think that's the thrust of this passage, is it not? That Jesus can answer every question regardless of how difficult, how hard it is. The brevity of words, simplicity of an answer, exactly right to Scripture, pierces the heart of everybody. And I think Jesus then is demonstrating one who's worthy to be trusted. Do you trust Him? Do you understand the Scripture? Do you understand the power of God? Do you understand the character of heaven? And do you understand the wisdom of Jesus? He can be trusted beyond all measure. Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank You for Your clear Word, which speaks without reservation the resurrection is true and real. And I pray, God, we might not doubt the resurrection. We believe, Lord, in a risen Christ whom we worship. I pray we'd understand that's what Scripture teaches. We worship Jesus Christ raised from the dead. I pray that we might understand the, the immense power of God able to raise Jesus from the dead able to raise us from the dead. I pray that we would live in such a way that we would look towards the character of heaven and look towards the day in which those of us who are married aren't married any longer, totally committed to Jesus Christ and serving and worshiping Him. And may we find in Jesus one who is totally trustworthy, one who satisfies all of our needs, all of our longings, all of our wants, all of our questionings. He is indeed the supreme one of all. May we trust Him Lord, I pray as you look down upon Rock Valley Bible Church that you would find faith in us to believe and trust Him in every way. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.